I don't know what part genealogy has played in, in your family history and, and in your life, but uh, in our family, on my grandma and grandpa Pound's side of the family, it's always been an important part. When I was a kid, and we would get together for Thanksgiving with Grandma and Grandpa Pound and the rest of the family, our discussion would inevitably turn to what is called the Pound Book. Uh, the official name of the Pound Book is the Pound and Kester Families, and I have a photostatic copy that my mom had printed a few years ago, and uh, so each one of us in the family would have a copy of that. Uh, the book is over 600 pages long, and it contains the genealogy of the Pound family and the Kester family, both of whom immigrated to our shores here in the United States of America around uh, late 16th or 17th century. Uh, both families immigrated to America. They intermarried several times. And, and on the surface, like most genealogies, uh, it's really not very interesting, especially when it's not your family. And in fact, it can be even quite boring at times. But, but what made it interesting is that the Pound family record did not go back far enough to match what was our oral family history. In the Pound book, it goes back to John Pound, back to 1686 in the United States. But the oral history took us back to his father, Thomas Pound, whom we had heard who was passed down the family, that the Thomas Pound came to this country and some thought that it was on the Mayflower. And so the question at Thanksgiving and part of the discussion in the afternoon would be, did our ancestor Thomas Pound come to America on the Mayflower or did he come on one of the ships that came later? And so in one way or another, we're really asking the question, was, were our ancestors at that first Thanksgiving as we were celebrating a Thanksgiving on that day? And one of my uncles always made the claim that he had gone back east someplace and he had seen the Mayflower ship manifest and yeah, John or Thomas Pound was on that and, and other members of the family to disagree with him and argue with him. And it was all part of the fun because in our family, they always talked about religion and politics and always did it in a, a way that was lively and fun even. And one of my uncles, if the discussion wasn't lively enough, would take the opposite side for a while just to keep it going. But here's the irony of the whole thing. When my older brother researched the genealogy, he was able to settle the matter, at least part of it. You see, it wasn't my grandpa Pound's ancestor, Thomas Pound, who came on the Mayflower. It was actually my grandmother's ancestor, Grandma Pound's ancestor, Edward Doty, who came on the Mayflower. In fact, he was a signer of the Mayflower Compact. And as far as I know, in the family discussions, it, it didn't come up at all that it might have been Grandpa or Grandma Pound's ancestor, so it surprised us all. And then a few years later, I discovered that Thomas Pound, because I did see the ship's manifest of the Mayflower, or not the Mayflower, but a ship on, on the internet, Thomas Pound came to America on the ship the Elizabeth and Anne in 1635, 21 years, or 24 years, or 14 years after uh, that first Thanksgiving. And Thomas Pound joined the Plymouth Colony and he married one of the women who had reportedly come on the Mayflower. And so we might have had at least three ancestors who were at that first Thanksgiving. So for the most part, the family oral history was correct, but it fell way short of what the history was when we finally had it documented.
So that's what the gospel writer wants us to understand. This careful historian, Luke, wants us to know that when it comes to the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, that it doesn't fall short. Luke wants us to know for certain that Jesus' credentials do not fall short. Luke wants us to know for certain that Jesus Christ is the only one in human history who can be and is the promised Messiah, God's anointed. So please turn to the genealogy in Luke's gospel. It's in Luke chapter 3, beginning at verse 23. The genealogy of Jesus here goes all the way back to Adam, who Luke says is the son of God. Luke chapter 3, beginning at verse 23. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Mathot, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Hesli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maoth, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Johanan, the son of Ressa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kasim, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathot, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliah, the son of Mena, the son of Mathatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Heber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalaleel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the Son of God. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, as we come to this genealogy today, Father, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you'd open up our hearts and our minds what you want us to know about Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Messiah, Father. Father, as we dig into this genealogy a little bit and and what its significance are, Father, I pray, Lord, that uh, you would give us an understanding of why This very important information is in your word and is your word, your word to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there's a lot more interest in genealogies today than when I was growing up. Some of you may recall the best-selling and hugely popular book by Alex Haley called Roots, the Saga of an American Family. It's the story of a black man's search to learn about his ancestors, and the book was turned into a television miniseries in 1977. It won nine Emmy Awards and over 135 other awards, and the miniseries received unprecedented Nielsen ratings for the finale, 
which still holds a record as the third highest rated U.S. television program ever. And, and since his best, Haley's best-selling book and the, the blockbuster television miniseries, a new genealogy craze has swept our nation. Four decades later after that book in the movie, genealogy is the second most popular hobby in the United States after gardening. It's a billion-dollar industry that spawned television shows, scores of books, and with the advent of the over-the-counter genetic testing kits, a cottage industry in DNA ancestry has, has developed. Now, while many people, a lot of people in our culture are very interested in their ancestors, God's people in Old Testament times and ancient times were far more interested in their geology, genealogies, and there are several reasons why. The first reason is that their ancestry determined the original division of the land of Canaan among the twelve tribes of Israel. In other words, it determines one's claim to the land. It determined who could own a parcel of land. It determined whom it could be sold to. And it was all based on the original tribal allocation of the promised land. You'll remember that when the children of Israel went, came into the land of promise, God divided up the land among them, and it was allocated according to tribal parcels, allocated to the twelve tribes of Israel. And so ancestry was very critical, crucial, in determining anyone's claim to a particular piece of land, what they could do with that land, and who they could sell that land to. And secondly, ancestry also established the right of inheritance to property and all that went with it. You see, it wasn't just the land that was inherited. The one inheriting the land based on ancestry also had right to servants. They had a right to an estate and buildings. They had the right to crops. They had a right to various material possessions. And the determination of the validity of that claim would be placed upon the genealogy. The genealogy verified the claim. In the book of the Ruth, for example, in chapters 3 and 4, ancestry provided for the transfer of property. In order to transfer property, in order to sell property, to pass property to somebody else, you, prove you, you had to prove you had the right to do that and that the person that you were giving or selling or transferring the property to had the right to receive it that there was some ancestral linkage to the transfer. And so in the book of Ruth also we see that ancestry formed the basis of what is called kinsman redemption. Kinsman redemption. If a poor person or a destitute person was forced to sell his property, one of his near relatives was to purchase it. The property had to stay in the family. And that near relative who purchased the property was called the kinsman redeemer. Now in the book of Ruth, Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, had to sell her land when they came back into Israel because Ruth and Naomi, they were both destitute. Naomi's husband had died. Both of her sons-in-laws had died, including Ruth's husband. And then there was Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi, and he wanted to purchase the land because whoever bought Naomi's land would also acquire, as it were, the widowed daughter-in-law, Ruth. That's why Boaz wanted to purchase the land, so he could marry Ruth. And the reason that a relative would have to, be, have to take Ruth as part of the bargain, as it were, was so that 
as a widow of a deceased husband, as Boaz put it, it would raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. And so Boaz offered the land to the nearest relative. And when he declined it, Boaz bought it. And he took Ruth as his wife, and Boaz became the kinsman redeemer. Now, you don't need to turn to it, but if we were to look up the genealogy in Matthew's gospel, we would read this in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. Boaz and Ruth were King David's great-grandparents. And if I've correctly counted, Ruth would be something like Jesus' 40th great-grandmother on his mother's side. And fourthly, ancestry played a role in in taxation. That is why Joseph and Mary had to travel to Bethlehem to register to, to be taxed. It was because they were the house and of the line of David. Bethlehem was the city of David. Bethlehem was the birthplace of the ancestral family, and that's where they went to register because that was their ancestral home. And then fifthly, ancestry determined one's eligibility to serve as a priest. The book of Ezra tells us that after they came back into the land after uh, the Babylonian captivity, there were several men who could not prove that they were descendants of certain ancestors. And so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. They were not descendants of Aaron. Not descendants of Aaron. And any time someone made a claim to priesthood, it had to be proven that they were in fact in the priestly line. But the most important thing on the list as to why ancestry was important to the Jews was this one. Genealogies made it clear that the promised Messiah would be directly descended from King David. Any claim to royalty, any claim to be king, any claim to be the Messiah would have to be verified. It'd have to be proven that this one claiming to be king had direct lineage to David, to King David. That he descended directly from the great king, David himself. So if you claimed a royal pedigree, you had to prove it by your genealogy. And so ancestry and genealogy dealt with the most important matters in Israel. And so that's why the Jews kept very careful genealogical records. In some cases, they went all the way back to Adam. And that's why there's so many genealogies and lists of who begat who and who's the father of who in the Bible, because this is all important. They kept fastidious genealogical records, and that's what the genealogy of Luke is showing us. Now, we wonder, where where did Luke get this? Well, obviously, he found access to the genealogy that he records here in his gospel because it was a matter of public record, as was the genealogy of Matthew that he records in chapter 1 of Matthew. Yes, the, the scriptures are inspired by God, but inspiration from God does not mean that Luke and Matthew didn't have access to an actual record. Luke and Matthew had access to the genealogical record that was available in the public office. And it could be verified and true as an accurate genealogy of Jesus Christ. And the Jews kept these accurate genealogies even after the Babylonian captivity. You'll remember that in 586 BC, you might not remember the date, but remember that Judah and Jerusalem was destroyed 
completely by Nebuchadnezzar. The people were taken into captivity for 70 years and the nation really disintegrated at that point. But when the people came back at the end of that 70 years, one of the things that they did along with rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the city, rebuilding the wall, and reconstituting the nation was to get back together all the genealogical records. And they kept those records very accurately from those ancient times through the captivity up until the time of Jesus and until 70 AD. What happened in 70 AD? The Roman general Titus Vespasian destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and all the records were destroyed at that point. And today, much to the chagrin and the sadness of the Jewish people, none of them know their lineage today. None of them know their lineage because all the records have been destroyed. They, some can trace their lineage back to New Testament times, perhaps, but they cannot go beyond that because all the records were destroyed in the destruction of Jerusalem. Most of them don't know what tribe, or they just have an oral history of what tribe they used to or do belong to. But that destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the records was by the design of God. By the design of God. Because at that point, the system was done with. There, there was no reason to keep genealogies anymore. Why? Because the Messiah had come. The purpose for the genealogies was primarily for the Messiah, and they were kept secondarily for the priesthood. But with the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, the priesthood came to an end as well. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice and there was no longer any need for any of the temple rites or the rituals or, or the sacrifices. In fact, the writer to the Hebrews put it this way. Talking about the priest in the temple, he said, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he... Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice and there's no need for the sacrificial system any longer. In fact, it's a front to God. It's an affront to God. There's no need for priest. So God did away with the whole system by judging Israel for their rejection of the Messiah. And God, through the Romans, brought a judgment which caused the destruction of those records. But at the time that Luke wrote his gospel, and at the time that Jesus came, the record was still intact. And it's very important as part of the credentials of the Messiah, if he is to be verified as the king, David's greater son who will rule, then he must have Davidic lineage. He must be in the line of David's. Now, the gospel writers, only Matthew and Luke, give us a genealogy of Jesus. And there's some significant differences between Matthew's genealogy and Luke's. And one of the reasons for the difference is that it reflects each writer's different purpose for why they were writing. Matthew begins his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus, where it fits in chronologically. So he puts it right at the front of his gospel prior to the birth life in the ministry of Jesus. Luke places the genealogy of Jesus between the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus. And all of this is to validate the claim 
that he is the promised Messiah. Jesus' baptism validates the claim that Jesus is the Messiah. His genealogy then validates the claim. And then the temptation of Jesus validates the claim. And another difference is that Matthew began his genealogy with Abraham, and then he descended down to Jesus. Jesus or Luke began his genealogy with Jesus and ascended back up to Adam and to God. And if you read the genealogies, you see they're quite different in the names and people who are listed, especially from King David down to Joseph, the husband of Mary. So turning once again to Luke chapter 3 at verse 23. And as Luke begins the genealogy here, we, we see the most significant difference between Luke's genealogy and Jesus. Verse 23 of Luke chapter 3. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. Now, Matthew tells us that Joseph's father was named Jacob, not Eli, as Luke reports here. And this is a significant and important difference. And the key to understanding this is the phrase is, as was supposed, that Jesus was as supposed the son of Joseph. The, the phrase is literally as it was being thought, as it was being thought that Joseph is the son or the father of Jesus. People logically presumably thought and believed that Joseph was Jesus' biological father, that Jesus was the son of the carpenter. He was called the carpenter's son. But Luke, of course, tells us that Joseph was not Jesus' biological father, that the Holy Spirit had come on Mary and she conceived, and for that reason, the holy child shall be called the son of God. Joseph was not Jesus' biological father, but he was Jesus' legal father. So Luke here in his genealogy is laying legal claim to Jesus' right through Joseph to the throne of David because Joseph is a descendant of David. And this is absolutely important because anybody who ascended to the throne got the legal right to the throne through his father and his father's father and so forth going back. Even if there was an adoption the father still made that son a legal son by adoption. So I don't know how or why, but Joseph had made Jesus his, his legal son. And Jesus could only receive the right to rule through his father. Here is adopted father, Joseph. And so genealogical legal records were traced through the males. That's why there's no females, no women listed in Luke's genealogy like there are like there is in Matthew's genealogy. But we haven't solved the problem yet as to why Luke says that Joseph's father was Eli and Matthew says that Joseph's father was Jacob. And the solution is really quite simple. Joseph was the supposed yet legal father of Jesus. And as you know, every one of us, every person has two gene genealogies. One is paternal and one is maternal. One's through the dad, one's through, through the mother. And Luke is clearly giving us the maternal line here, through Mary, Jesus' mother. Her name is not mentioned because women are not mentioned in a legal claim. And more than likely, Mary's father, we know his name, is Eli. It's possible that he did not have any sons of his own. 
but his inheritance is going to be through Joseph, his son-in-law, because Joseph is considered the son of, of Eli here. And, and so Joseph would be considered uh, Eli's son, whether uh, Eli had other sons or not. So Luke records the maternal ancestry through Mary, and Matthew records the paternal ancestry through Joseph. And so here we have in Luke the genealogy of Mary, which Luke gives under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to prove not only does Jesus have the legal right to rule, the legal right through his father, but he has the blood of David in his veins because of his mother, Mary. So either way, Jesus is a descendant of David. He can be king legally through Joseph. He can be king naturally through Mary. The credentials are clear, they are detailed, and they are irrefutable. And finally, the genealogy of Jesus is significant, is significant because of the importance of three particular names listed in the genealogy. Three names listed in the genealogy are key to Jesus' claim to be the promised Messiah sent from God. First, he was a descendant of David. Luke said that in verse 31, that Jesus is the son of David. So please turn back to the book of 2 Samuel in the Old Testament. 2 Samuel chapter 7 at verse 11. Now David was the greatest of all of Israel's kings. He was greatly revealed by the people of God. It was with King David that God made a covenant. He made an agreement with David. And we read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 7, in the middle of verse 11, in the middle of verse 11, where God said to David through the prophet Nathan, The Lord also declares to you, talking to David, that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant, your seed, literally, your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so here the seed is Solomon, and who builds a house, who will build the temple. But there's also coming a seed where he says that uh, he will establish it forever. In verse 16, he says, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And you may recall that even before Jesus was born, the angel Gabriel went to Mary, said to her that she's going to conceive and bear a son whose name would be Jesus. Then he said to her in Luke chapter 1, verse 32, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. So Jesus was a descendant of David, thus making him the promised Messiah who would rule as king forever and ever. And secondly, Jesus was a descendant of Abraham. Luke said in verse 34 in the genealogy, that Jesus is the son of Abraham. And we see this uh, back in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 12, beginning at uh, verse 1. 
In the 12th chapter of Genesis, God called Abraham, or as he's called Abram here, this is before God changed his name to Abraham, while he was still a pagan in Haran. And God said to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. And make your name great and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So turn over a couple of pages in your Bible to the 15th chapter of Genesis. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. Later, God made a covenant with Abraham when Abraham was concerned that he had no child. God said, I'm going to make a nation of you and, and talked about uh, uh, more than the sands of the sea or sands of the, yeah, whatever it was. But anyway, but we read about it uh, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heirs of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to them, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And then the Apostle Paul clarified that God's covenant to Abraham found its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Paul said in Galatians 3.16, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, Paul says, that is Christ. The promise that he was talking about is the seed, the descendant of Abraham, who is Jesus Christ. Seed, singular, Jesus, who was a direct descendant of Abraham, thus making him the promised Messiah. And lastly, Jesus was a descendant of Adam. Luke wrote in verse 38 at the end of chapter 3 that Jesus was the son of Adam. Adam, as you know, was the very first man created by God. He was created in God's own image. And from Adam, all humanity descended, but Adam also fell into sin, thus plunging all humanity into sin as well. And if you're familiar with Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, you know that Matthew's genealogy does not extend beyond Abraham. And the reason for that is that Matthew was writing primarily to a Jewish audience. And he wanted them to understand that Jesus was a direct descendant of Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. The most likely reason Luke extended his genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam was to show that Jesus, as a direct descendant of Adam, was in fact the promised Messiah, and that the Messiah is not 
only for Jews, but is in fact, he is Messiah and Savior from people from all over the world. For all those who are descended from Adam, all those who are descended from Adam, he can be their Savior. He is their Messiah. And although Luke does not mention it in the way that Paul clearly does, Luke also implies that Jesus, who's called in Scripture the second Adam or the last Adam, is in fact the last Adam. Uh, so let's turn to that. Uh, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 42. In chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul expanded the truth that all people are related to Adam by natural generation. By natural generation. Who begat who begat who? You know, born, natural, being born of this world. Whereas all believers are related to Jesus, the last Adam, by regeneration. By being born again. And notice how Paul contrasts in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 42, what we have inherited from the first Adam, especially in relationship to the human body, to the human body that dies and goes into the ground. That's what we inherited by generation from the first Adam. But he also contrasts that with what we can become in Jesus Christ, the last Adam, the last Adam. And so Paul here is talking about the human body and the resurrection. And he says in verse 42, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. That is, it's put into the ground as a perishable body. But it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. Now get this. The last Adam, that is Jesus Christ, became a life-giving spirit. And so Jesus is the promised Messiah who is descended from Adam, is the Messiah not only for the Jews, but for all people. And he gives a life-giving spirit. Commentator Douglas Milne sums up the significance of the three names that we've talked about in the genealogy of Jesus this way. He says, So Jesus' family tree has shown us some interesting and important connections. David the king, Abraham the man who received God's promises, and Adam the first human. Having David for an ancestor links Jesus to God's royal house. Having Abraham for an ancestor links him to God's covenant people, east, west, north, and south. Having Adam for an ancestor links him to the whole human family. By being David's son, Jesus rules the world. By being the son of Abraham, he fulfills the promises. By being Adam's son, he acts for human beings. Did you know that when you give your heart to Jesus Christ, believing in Him and trusting Him alone for your salvation, that you are now part of a completely different family tree? You have a new ancestry. 
God says when you believe in Christ, you become part of his family. It's not through a natural process of human conception, but it's through adoption. When you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are adopted into God's family. You become a child of God and all that that means to be a child of God. Ephesians 3.6 says that we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Whatever Jesus Christ owns and has because of his relationship to the Heavenly Father, everything that Jesus has from the Father is also given to us because we're the same family. Romans 8.15 says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. The word Abba has much the same meaning as the word Daddy. It's a term of endearment. It's an endearment of love, a special relationship, while at the same time maintaining the same respect as the word Father. That is our relationship to our Heavenly Father who has adopted us. He's our Daddy. He's our Father who out of love for us gave Jesus Christ to die for us that we might be the family of God. The family of God. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5 tells us that our Heavenly Father in adopting us that it gave Him great pleasure. You know, you can imagine the pleasure that adoptive parents have today when they take that child into their home and make that child their own. It gives God great pleasure to adopt us into his family. His unchanging plan, God's own unchanging plan from before the foundation of the world has always been to adopt us into his family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Messiah. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you that this was your plan before the foundation of the world, that Jesus Christ came into this world knowing that he would die for our sins that we might have a relationship and be in fellowship with you for all eternity, Father. Father, we thank you if this was your plan, that you knew Adam would sin, that you knew we would sin, that you knew that we would be lost, and you knew that you would redeem us through the blood of Jesus Christ and make us your family that you would adopt us. Father, I pray if there's somebody listening to either the podcast or listening live or the Facebook live stream, Father, knowing that your Holy Spirit is work, Father, I just pray that you would work on the heart of those who need to know this. They need to have faith to believe this, Father. They need to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. And Father, I pray that you would touch their hearts and their lives even right now, as they hear my voice. Break them into your family through Jesus Christ. And we give you praise as your children, as your adopted ones. In Jesus' name.
And I pray this in his name. Amen.